This talk was given to a group of people sitting in silence during a meditation retreat. It is intended for a mind that is quiet and attentive. We invite you to enter into your own mini-retreat by sitting quietly and listening wholeheartedly. The teachings you are about to receive were freely offered. If you would like to make a donation to support their continuation, please visit us at dharmaseed.org. Vipassana knowledge is realizing the three universal characteristics of all phenomena. And the three characteristics of all phenomena are impermanence, or nicha, dukkha, that Guy spoke about the other night, which can mean pain, unsatisfactoriness, uh, suffering. And the third characteristic of all phenomena is the anatta characteristic, which can mean that experience is conditioned and that it is impersonal. As we develop our mindfulness to see the moment-to-moment arising and passing away of mental and physical phenomena, we begin to deepen our understanding of both the unique flavor of each moment, but we also begin to access these characteristics, the understanding that this moment's experience is also impermanent, unstable, impersonal. The teaching on the anatta characteristic is often difficult to understand. It is a teaching that is unique to the Buddha's understanding of the way things are, and it is a very subtle understanding. But it is important that we who are practicing to see the truth hear the teachings on the anatta characteristic so that we will begin to align our practice, practice confidently, and recognize confirming experience. Conventionally speaking, in our consensual reality, in the ordinary give and take of our everyday lives, there is a sense of a self in this mind-body process, or that this mind-body process is a self, that there's some capacity to, to be someone, that there is a doer, a feeler, a thinker, a a master of this activity here, or a a resident within this mind-body process. But Mahasi Sayadaw, well-known meditation master in Burma of the last century, he said that this sense, this mistaken sense of a self, is merely a concept conjured up by the imagination of ordinary people. 
in our ordinary peopleness when we conjure up this sense of ourself, we can be sure it's going to lead to suffering. And it is the suffering of this sense of self that has brought us to practice and that is liberated through the correct understanding and the realization of the anatta characteristic. The Buddha said of this misunderstanding, the wrong view of personality belief has everywhere and at all times most misled and deluded humankind. It is this wrong understanding that has most misled and deluded us and been the condition for the resultant suffering. The insight or the realization of the anatta characteristic means clearly seeing that all phenomena are not under anyone's control. That there is no being here and that these mental and physical experiences arise and pass away due to their own conditions, not our choice. It's important to understand that the Buddha was, in all of his teaching, most concerned about suffering and the end of suffering. And though he, it is said, he could know anything he put his mind to. Imagine. Anything you want to put your mind to, you could know. Out of all that he knew, he most emphasized and was most concerned, and in most of his teaching was looking at, is this suffering the cause of suffering, or is this leading to the end of suffering? I mention this because wrongly understanding reality will cause suffering. Rightly understanding and then living in alignment with that understanding will minimize suffering. The teachings of anatta is, at first glance, counterintuitive. It seems like there's somebody here. It's very difficult to hear it, or to believe it, or to experience it otherwise. So it's not obvious what the Buddha was pointing to. Even when we hear the teachings, it is often difficult to grasp the concept or to even cognitively understand what it is that the Buddha is pointing to. And with it being counterintuitive and difficult to kind of grok conceptually, it is subtle 
to confirm experientially. So it's important to begin to understand the relationship between our ordinary experience and how we understand that, how we, what we believe about that, and insightful experience in what we believe about that. We all believe that the earth revolves around the sun. But that belief is not from our direct perception. Because when we watch the sun rise, it looks like the sun rises in the east, goes overhead, and sets in the west. And so our belief or our understanding from our own direct perception would be the sun is going around the earth. But we have been told over and over again, insistently, obsessively, demandingly, authoritatively, by those who understand in a more subtle way or kind of observe and know things differently in a more subtle way, more comprehensive way, that know your perception, while your perception is right, your understanding is wrong. Really, the earth goes around the sun. And they've told us that. Now we believe it. Contrary to our perception. Similarly, our mistaken belief that there is an enduring entity, a being, in here, to whom all this experience is happening, that was born, that will die, and all that. The Buddha said, that's a wrong understanding of what you are experiencing. And the Buddha said in his second discourse that he offered to the the five ascetics that he had practiced with, he said, you should see all of this life, all of these experiences of mind and body as not me, not mine, not who I am. How did he come to that understanding? Can we come to that understanding through our practice here? In the discourse to Magandhya, the Buddha said, I have long been tricked, cheated, and defrauded by this mind. For when I was clinging, I have just been clinging to form, perceptions, feelings, intentions, and knowing. With my clinging as condition, this whole mass of suffering has come into being. Whatever it is about ourself that our mind tells us is ourself that we cling to so dearly is nothing more than form, perceptions, feeling, intentions, and knowing. But because we cling, we suffer. 
Well, let's look at our experience. Let's see if there's some way that we can look at our experience and begin to understand it differently based on what we actually see in our practice here, rather than what conventionally we see and mistakenly understand when we don't look so close so carefully. So let's look at the body. You have a body? I have a body. I am my body. I'm in my body, or my body is me, or somehow this is it. Because when my body's healthy, I feel good. I'm identified with how my body looks. Are you? Nah. You know, you stand in front of the mirror, and how many hours have we spent in front of the mirror adjusting the hair so that it looks like how we think we should look? And we're not only concerned about our appearance, its size, its shape, its color, its texture. We're concerned about the functioning of the body, whether it works well, whether it's healthy or not, whether it hears okay or sees okay or does what we would hope that it could do. Not only are we concerned about how it appears, how it works, even something as impersonal as our statistics, like what's your cholesterol level, or what's your PSA, or what's your blood pressure. You know, if you've got high cholesterol and high blood pressure, that feels like you, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, you've got to do something about it. So we get identified even with numbers associated with the body. Not only are we identified with our bodies, we identify other people with their bodies. Beautiful people, we like beautiful people. You know, people who are really, well, different. You know, sometimes, in whatever way different is. You know, well, sometimes, hmm. There's a lot of suffering from this identification with our body, identification of other people with their bodies. It is a burdensome, it is often a burdensome responsibility to try to maintain our body like we want it to be. Whatever that is for you. Young, healthy, useful, smooth. And with that responsibility and the inevitability of aging, there's a lot of self-consciousness. There's a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. Obsessively seeking pleasure, fearfully avoiding pain, hoping against all hope that we don't get sick and die young. But we can't control that, can we? We can't control whether the body gets sick, stays healthy, how long it lives, what it looks like, how soon the hair goes gray and the eyesight fails. and We can't control that. We hope for the best. We do what we can. We try to live a good life. But it's out of our control. We should take care of the body. 
There are many, many practices to take care of the body, both physically, mentally, practicing loving kindness, uh, eating well, uh, taking your vitamins that you're supposed to take, getting some exercise, some cardiovascular stuff, doing some stretching, not getting too attached to your body because inevitably it's going to grow old, so do some reflecting on that. And nevertheless, we still are pretty attached to the body. And when the inevitability comes, we suffer. I myself have noticed recently I'm getting older. But you know what? Even though I'm 56, inside I don't feel 56. I feel about 23. (laughs) That's delusion. (laughs) You know, the body obviously grows old. You can watch it in the mirror. But how do you watch your mind grow old? Or does the mind grow old? Does the mind grow old? One of the activities of mind that obscures how impersonal this body really is is the conjuring, as Mahasi Sayadaw says, the conjuring up in our imagination of a concept. And we do that with the body by fusing together separate, distinct experiences. So we fuse together. We look in the mirror and we see some colors and some forms and we we kind of scan the image in front of the mirror. Oh, well, not even the mirror. As you look at one another, you take in colors and forms and you glue them all together into a single unit called a person. But that activity of mind is really based on individual perceptions of seeing, form, and color. It takes a lot of understanding to make a person out of form and color. And then to begin to recognize, is it male or female, young or old, healthy or not? The fusing of separate material phenomena into a solid whole creates the appearance of a body that is really the fusion of many distinctly separate visual objects of color and form into a solidified single unit. However, when we begin to pay attention, as we do here, mindfully looking carefully at the experience of the body, once we close our eyes, what do we know? We don't know size, shape, color, appearance. What we begin to, to see, initially we have an anatomical map that we're kind of imagining, this is my arm, this is what it feels like, this is my knee, that's what it feels like, that's my back. But as we look closely, what do we actually see? What do we actually know about the body's experience? Hardness, softness, aching, heat, coolness, tingling, tickling, pressure, twisting. Is that you? Could you honestly say, I'm itching? (laughs) That is my essence, hardness, aching, pressure. It really doesn't 
sound right, does it? But actually, that's all we see when we look carefully at the physical experience. We take all of that fleeting, evanescent, ephemeral experiences of insubstantial stuffness and we glue it all together and we create my body that we're so attached to, that causes us so much suffering that we have absolutely no control over. The Buddha said, this body is like a clump of foam. It is void, hollow, it's insubstantial. When we practice mindfulness, we see that. There really isn't much substance in here. And whatever it is that we experience is fleeting. Buddhaghosa was a Buddhist scholar about 500 years after the Buddha, and he wrote this meditation manual called the Visuddhimagga, the Path of Purification. And in it he says, the anatta characteristic, the understanding of how impersonal phenomena is, is not obvious because the concept of a solid entity obscures it when attention is not given separately to distinct phenomena. When the different phenomena, though, are seen separately and the conceptual solid entity is broken up, then the characteristic of anatta or impersonality becomes obvious automatically. Well, what's the benefit? What's the value of deeply understanding that this body that we're experiencing is really ephemeral, evanescent pixels of insignificant phenomena. Well, we can have a more balanced relationship to our body. We can understand that it really is not ours. We really don't control it. We really can't decide how it'll age, what it'll look like, when it'll get sick, when it'll die. And so in that understanding of how impersonal this body and the functioning the appearance of it really is, we can establish a much more balanced relationship to how much attention we give it, the kind of attention we give it, what we expect of it. And in this way, we don't set ourselves up for suffering quite so much. We can let go of the obvious forms of suffering. The body's going to grow old. The body's going to get sick body's going to die and not be tortured by that. For most of my life, my life, for most of the time I've been aware of this mind-body process, (laughs) let's speak conventionally, for most of my life I've had um, some a kind of a chronic abdominal distress syndrome. And I, I've, over the years, I've gone to all, all kinds of medical practitioners for it. You know, you go to an allopathic doctor, and they, they do some tests, and they say, you know, here, take this medicine, and 
see if that brings you some relief. And you go to a chiropractor doctor and they say, oh, you know, you need to have some adjustments and they'll crack your back and stretch your legs and things like that, hoping that it'll fix the condition. And you go to a homeopathic doctor and they say, here, take these expensive little drops of something that really doesn't have anything in it except the essence of something from, <laughs> from way back there. You know, that'll surely do it. I went to a Burmese doctor when I was in Burma and he said, you need your nerves massaged, and nerves massage is the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my life. You go to a Chinese doctor, and they boil up some foul-smelling herbs and say, drink this twice a day. I even went to somebody who works with crystals, laid me out on the table, put the crystals on me, you know, said, you've got to get your colors fixed. <laughs> Nevertheless, I kept suffering. <laughs> my stomach was not okay. Eventually, in Burma, I said, you know what? I've got to stop keeping track of everything I eat, how many times I go to the bathroom, what it's like, because obviously that's not going to stop the suffering. So I just started to pay attention. Once you take the, the commentary out of the experience, the experience is really quite tolerable. But it's all the concern about my body it's sick, it hurts, what can I do that causes the suffering? But as a direct experience, often the symptoms of a disease are far less suffering than our thoughts about it. But until we practice mindfulness and let go of those thoughts and judgments and fears, we suffer. But when we can steady our attention and see the body, feel the body as it really is, know the body as it really is, then we can stop suffering. The body is an obvious source of attachment, identification, suffering, but the mind too, equally available as an object for wrong understanding. Maybe the most common manifestation of the mind as we, as we observe it is, is thoughts. Our thoughts are so incessant and they are so loud that they have created the appearance of someone inside this body-mind that is narrating the story of my life. It's who I am. You know, and the continuity of that voice or that narrator has created this illusion that there's actually somebody in here. And the monologue weaves into the story everything that is experienced. Every sight, sound, taste, smell, thought is woven into the story of my life. And for some of you, it may be, here I am, a yogi on retreat at IMS. Today, how is my practice today? Well, I got up early, that was good, but got tired later in the day. Had a good sitting. Good thing I had my interview. I was able to say something really good about practice. 
lunch. Mmm, love that tofu Tuesday. Wow, that was really good. I wonder whose birthday it was when I heard them singing. You know, and on and on it goes. And we think that's who we really are. Because whatever we've noticed, or whatever has been noticed, has been woven into the story of, here I am, a yogi on retreat. If we were really insightful, we'd understand there's nobody on retreat. There's no retreat. But let's step back to when we believe the story that the narrator tells us, we're bound to suffer. Because woven into it are all our fears, all our ambitions, all our sorrows, all our grief, all our pain. Everything we've ever experienced that's been difficult and challenging is me, part of my story. And somehow it has a way of just rolling around again and again and again. And every time it comes up, we reaffirm, yes, I really did suffer. Yes, I really was painful. Yes, I really am afraid. Yes, I really was stupid. It could be worse. Our monologue, even if we could maintain it, is challenged by conditions that don't support it and other people that don't see us that way. There's another source of suffering. To the extent that you hang on to your idea of yourself, if somebody has a different opinion, there's conflict. This continuous story that seems to be without beginning or that we know of, and we certainly haven't seen much of an end, but seems to be just continuous, begins to be untied, begins to be broken up when we start to pay attention mindfully. Moment by moment, the tapestry of myself, ourself, begins to be untied by mindfulness. When we notice that each experience that we're weaving into the narrative is actually just a discrete moment. It's just a moment of experience, a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a thought when we turn the light of mindfulness up close and personal on the tapestry of our personal history, we begin to see how much effort it takes to keep the story going, to keep weaving in everything that we experience, everything that we remember, everything that we plan, Can you imagine if you had to live out all the plans you've made for yourself? (laughs) How long that would take? How many lifetimes you'd have to come back just to do that? And while you're doing that, making more plans for other futures, and while you're living them out, making even more, there's no end. That's samsara. 
looking for happiness in all the wrong places, making plans while life happens here in the present moment. Myself is just a thought-constructed conjuring of the imagination, Mahasi Sayadaw says. It creates a narrator of continuity where there really is none. In practice, one suggestion for watching the mind, for watching that narrator, for beginning to see through the story of my life, is to note your experience rather than narrate them. When our noting gets careless, it kind of slides into a narrative. But when the noting is crisp, there are discrete moments of seeing, hearing, thinking, judging. And there's no story to weave them together. It's that clarity of seeing that a moment of thinking is different than a moment of judging, a moment of hearing, or a moment of seeing, or a moment of remembering. They're discrete individual moments. They have a relationship, it's true. They condition one another. But there really is no story. There really is no person to whom all of this is happening. Sometimes it feels like our knowing or our consciousness is just this big kind of ball of knowing that kind of hovers around our head. And it's always there, and it knows everything that happens to us. When we pay attention to these discrete moments of experience, we begin to see through that illusion that there is this continuity. What we see is the activity of fusing experience into a sequence. Normally, or in ordinary reality, the sequence is so quick, and we fuse it all together, we think the me that looked in the mirror this morning is the me that looked in the mirror this afternoon. Or the me that came in to sit is the me that gets up and leaves. When we see into the experience as it is unfolding with really crisp mindfulness, the concept of lifting the leg is seen to be, well, it's a concept of leg because we have kind of glued together a whole bunch of experiences into a form called leg. And the lifting, that movement of the leg, is the concept of a sequence of sensations. But actually, there's no leg, and there's no lifting. There's just individual discrete moments of sensation, which conceptually we've imagined into a leg lifting. It takes a steady attention takes a willingness to acknowledge this is the direct experience. This is what my actual experience is of the body, of the mind. Being able to cut through the 
sequencing, the, the kind of the gluing together, so that we can see the discrete moments of our experience. When we do, we understand that each moment is unique in and of itself. It stands alone in and of itself. It is the glue of identification which connects them all. And it is this identification which causes us to suffer. Don Juan was the teacher of Carlos Castaneda. And in the journey to Ixland, he taught Carlos that a spiritual warrior doesn't need a personal history. One day he or she finds it's no longer necessary and drops it. The art of a warrior is to balance the terror of being with the wonder of being. To drop your personal history is to pay exquisite, careful attention. Years ago, I was scheduled to fly from San Francisco to Boston and had my ticket and due to some desire or change of schedule or something, I needed to leave a day earlier. So I called up the airport and said, you know, is there any, are there any empty seats on this red-eye flight leaving San Francisco in the evening? If there is, I'd like to come fly standby in order to get to Boston earlier. And the United agent on the other end said, oh, yeah, plenty of room on that flight. It's nearly empty. So I said, great. Went down to the airport, got to the airport for the red-eye flight, and it was pandemonium at the airport. And I got to the counter, and I said, what's, what's going on? And they said, oh, we canceled the flight to Boston. All of those people are trying to get on the red-eye. And I said, oh, no. I said, I, was, I, I wanted to fly standby that flight. And they said, not a chance. We got two, two, two plane loads full of people trying to, get, trying to get on that flight. And I said, well, could you put me on the wait list? I'm a frequent flyer. I'm a premier frequent flyer. I'm a premier executive frequent flyer, <laughs> or whatever. And they said, sure, we'll put you on the wait list. But this was when you could go to the gate. They said, go up to the gate, wait for everyone to board. If there's any seats left over, you can fly. So I went up to the gate, pandemonium. I went up to the counter and said, I'd like to fly standby. I'm registered to fly standby. I'm a frequent flyer. Premier executive, frequent flyer. <laughs> So I said, well, just sit down there. Once we get the plane loaded, we'll see if there's any empty seats, and we'll let you know. So they started loading people on the plane, and they wanted to get the plane off on time, shuffling everybody down the gangplank, or down the, the breezeway. And after they called out everybody, they said to the three of us who wanted to fly standby, they said, why don't you come with us? We'll wait till everybody gets set down. If there's any seats, we'll, we'll let you uh, on. And I let them know. I was the frequent flyer. <laughs> So they got us down to the door of the plane. And you know how it is. It's kind of chaotic. People are putting their luggage in and they're walking around and they're checking out with friends and whatever it is. They finally got everybody set down and the, the flight attendant said, oh, there's one seat way up back. I'm the frequent flyer. They said, okay, well, you, you can get on. So ah, I was so happy I was going to get to Boston on time and I was just elated. I walked down and unfortunately it was a middle seat between two 
football players, and there was about <laughs> no room, but I was happy. I said, and there was no place to put in my bag, so it was under my feet, and it was squashed between these two big guys, but I was going to get to Boston on time. I was sitting there, kind of waiting for the plane to leave, and they found another empty seat, and they got the second person who was to fly standby and put them in an empty seat. They closed the door, and they're about to back off from the, from the gate, and somebody in first class realizes, you know, they did the destination check, said, we're going to Boston. Somebody says, I'm not, I don't go to Boston. So they, they said, wait a minute, I don't want to. So they got up out of first class, they opened the door, they let this person off, and they said to the third person who was waiting to fly standby, there's another seat. So in walks this young fellow that, well, it looked like he enjoyed his life on the beach or something. They put him in first class, the first class empty seat. I said, hey, ring the bell. <laughs> I, I, I'm, the, I'm the premier executive frequent flyer. <laughs> Don't I get some special privileges? Can I have that first class seat? We're going to leave on time. You've got to see. You're flying standby. Be quiet. <laughs> the first half hour of the flight, I was fuming. I was furious. I was so upset. I'm, I'm the frequent flyer. I'm the premier executive frequent flyer. Why can't I get the first class seat? Then I said, another five and a half hours to Boston. If I'm like this for five and a half more hours, I'm going to be a mess. I'm going to really suffer. And so I said, okay, forget it. Let it go. I dropped my need to be recognized as a premier executive frequent flight. <laughs> Temporarily. <laughs> For the next five and a half hours. <laughs> I didn't suffer. I just, I mean, it's just like all that agitation in the mind just went poof. I was happy to be flying. I got there on time. I'm still a frequent flyer. <laughs> I still get the benefits most of the time. I tell the story because every one of us has some role, some identity, some personality that we're identified with. And that role, that identity, causes us a tremendous amount of suffering. Want to be good yogi, want to be, you know, good looking. Wanted to be whatever it is you want to be. Good mom, bad mom, you know, smart, intelligent, insightful, whatever it is. You know, it causes us anxiety and self-consciousness and fear and suffering. When you see and let go of your identity, your identification, what actually happens? You stop suffering. That's all. You just stop suffering. You're still who you were. You still have the same body, you still have the same mind, you still have the same status or non-status, whatever it is. You just stop suffering. When you let go of that grip, when you loosen the grip of your identification. And that's what mindfulness and the insight into anatta shows you that this thought of ourself is just an illusion. Let go of the attachment to it. Let go of the identification to it. Whatever it is that's causing you suffering. 
Let it go. Enjoy the rest of your life, if you will. The body, the mind. The Buddha said, all that we feel are like bubbles in a stream. All that we perceive are like a shimmering mirage. All that we intend is like a banana trunk without any core. These experiences are ephemeral. They're evanescent. They're insubstantial. When we feel pleasant and unpleasant feelings, we feel like it's me. When we feel pleasant, I'm happy. When we feel unpleasant, I'm unhappy. When we perceive sights, sounds, thoughts, this continuous creation of our personal history, we get identified with what we see, how we see it, what we believe about it. When we act, when we speak, when we act, fueled by our intention to do it that way, we create the illusion that there's someone inside who's making that decision. There's the doer, the decider, the one who's controlling what it is I do. These are all illusions. The sense of self that is created by the pleasant, the unpleasant, the intending, the perceptions, is just glued together out of all these momentary, discrete experiences. The suffering is unnecessary. The story we tell ourselves of my personal history, my family of origin, my suffering, my sorrows, my disappointments, my successes, my failures, my memories, and my plans, they're not yours. They're not you. They're not who you are. But these feelings, these perceptions, these intentions, they're incessant. They're habitual. They're the warp and the weft of the fabric of me. And with them comes a tremendous amount of suffering. Fear, attachment, identification, feeling responsible. It's endless. But it's all because we're identified with them. As we develop our mindfulness and expose that suffering, we unpack our memories. When the personal history comes up for review, as it does, and we recover our memories of the way things really were for us then, it's painful to see what we were unable to open to and to feel, to acknowledge when we were younger when we were more afraid, when we were less mindful. But in that recovery of those memories, we are deconditioning a very limited, painful sense of self. And we can change our relationship to those memories by letting go of them. The memories are there. The memories will always be there. But our relationship to them changes. We see things as they really were. We can open to, 
We can understand clearly. We don't have to be guilty about what we did. Guilt is a, is a fixation on the unskillful intention in the past. And when we see that guilty action, or when we feel that guilt, or when we feel that shame, or humiliation, or whatever it is that is causing us so much pain, we can see it as a momentary perception that we got identified with. And that sense of self has been lingering in the background ever since. That sense of self is just an artificial construct of the mind. And when you see it, you can let it go. And with it, you let go of the suffering. The mind is fast. Our perceptions, our thinking, our judgments, extremely rapid. It creates a a spinning illusion of our sense of ourself. But mindfulness is the capacity to steady our attention and to stop the spin or to see through the illusion that is created by that spin so that we can see each pixel that's creating this illusion of a sense of myself. And we can see it for what it truly is, a momentary arising in the body, in the mind, that is not under my control, It's not a being. It arises and passes away due to its own conditions. When we see that, we can truly let go of each of our experiences. We still have experiences. We still know the experience of the body, know the experience of the mind, have a relative sense of ourself that we present to the world. But we're not identified with it. We understand what an illusion it is, how ephemeral it is, how evanescent it really is. One of the deepest insights into the anatta characteristic is not only seeing that the objects that arise in our experience, whether they're physical or mental, are impermanent, elusive, arise and pass away due to their own conditions. But it's also seeing that the knowing of them that seems to point to a knower, the knowing of them is also impermanent, elusive, evanescent, not stable. And when we see through the illusion that there is someone knowing all this, 
that the knowing too is just a momentary appearance. Then we see through the illusion of me, the impermanence of me, or the kind of the identification with this unseen entity within. And with that, we can really drop back. We can really step back from and let go of that need to control, to fix, to have things our way, to avoid unpleasant, to seek the pleasant. We can really understand that it's just momentary knowing of impersonal phenomena that is the nature of our life. It is a freeing understanding. It frees us from suffering, from wishing things to be otherwise. When we see that things are impermanent, they're fleeting, not under our control, when we see that they're due to conditions that just happen, when we see how transient and ephemeral all experiences, or how evanescent, it's like mist. You look at the body sometimes and it's just... <laughs> or you look at the mind and it's just... <laughs> There's hardly anything there. And when you see how the substance or the essence or the core, when you get right down to it, it's just a fleeting... You're seeing the inata characteristic. Slowly, this understanding grows within you, within the mind, the understanding how impersonal it all really is. Seeing thus, with proper wisdom, the Buddha said, he or she becomes disenchanted with all this phenomena. Being disenchanted, he or she becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, his or her mind is liberated. And when it is liberated, there comes the knowledge. It is liberated. So let's sit for a moment. Having known the body, perceptions, thoughts, to be feeble, fading away, and comfortless, with the ending, cessation, the fading away, giving up and relinquishing of attraction and clinging to all these things, I have understood that my mind is liberated. The Buddha said,
This talk was given by Stephen Armstrong at Insight Meditation Society on November 22, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.